Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're examining the issue of how to control the proliferation of strategic technologies for military use, especially to China. As we've discussed in prior China Power podcasts, under Xi Jinping, China has openly stated that it seeks to dominate the crucial technologies of the 21st century. The Chinese government is implementing state-led industrial policies aimed at making China a leader in global high-tech manufacturing. A high priority objective is self-sufficiency in semiconductor manufacturing, so that China can control the means of production, meet domestic demand for semiconductors for both military and civilian use, and reduce U.S. economic power and leverage. China is also pursuing a policy of military-civil fusion, which seeks to rapidly channel the world's cutting-edge technologies to the Chinese military. To serve the goal of making the People's Liberation Army a world-class military by 2049, while Beijing's ambitions are not disputed, there is debate about how the United States and other countries should respond. A key focus of the policy debate is on whether and how to implement export controls on semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Global and national regimes are in place to control the export of military technologies, and we're going to talk about some of them today. So, to discuss how the U.S. and its partners should formulate policies to protect strategic technologies with dual-use potential, I am joined by Dr. Rosalind Layton and Dr. James Lewis. Dr. Layton is a visiting researcher at Alberg University Center for Communication, Media, and Information Technologies. And also senior vice president at Strand Consult. In addition, she's founder of China Tech Threat, which is dedicated to improving U.S. policy to protect Americans from technology threats from the People's Republic of China. Dr. Jim Lewis is my colleague, a senior vice president and director of the Strategic Technologies Program at CSIS, and a leading global thinker on the relationship between technology, innovation, and national power. So, Jim Rosalind, thanks for joining us today. So, Jim, let's start with you. China's invested、uh, heavily into making its own semiconductors to reduce reliance on foreign sources. So, what's China's progress in developing its own semiconductors, and how far behind is it? How long would it take for China to catch up with industry leaders? And Can tightening export controls really prevent China from achieving the dominance that it seeks? China's position varies from chip to chip. You know, so memory chips, it was close. In the more advanced chips that you might see in CPUs,、uh, they were far away. So it ranges across the board. They were roughly on the same trajectory as、uh, Japan, Korea. Which is you know start at the bottom, start at memory chips, and then work your way up to the more advanced technologies. U.S. sanctions have thrown them off that path and slowed them down. So the Chinese are committed; they're spending billions of dollars, but they're still dependent on Western technology. And when I say Western, the U.S. controls 50% of the capital goods market for semiconductors. Japan controls 25%. So, if the U.S. and Japan decide to put the brakes on, China has to slow down. Okay, so Roslyn, 
Talk a little bit about the regimes that are in place to control the proliferation force of strategic technologies and, and tell us about what we have here in the U.S., but also globally. Well, you can say that this practice of strategic trade control, you can trace it back to at least World War II, certainly in the United States in the, the 1950s, where we, the people through Congress, have adopted a series of laws that would control the trade of advanced technologies for the very simple reason we don't want our great technologies to be used against us. This notion goes back to World War I when a wind-up toy could have been used to put a bomb in, across enemy lines. So this notion has been there for a long time. The most recent iteration of this would be 2018 in the United States, where Congress adopted two major reforms of our commerce regimes, uh, one on the inbound side with investment coming into the United States from foreign actors, and then the trade going out of the U.S. So those people may be familiar with are called FIRMA and ECRA. These are two laws passed in those years. So on the inbound side, we have the Treasury Department through CFIUS, which is um, reviewing mergers reviewing acquisitions. Chinese government, we have seen all of the presidents have acted either to block or mitigate or undo mergers of specific semiconductor firms where there was a concern. Quite significantly, we have the Bureau of Industry and Security, which is uh, involved with setting up these kind of trade control in the sense of needing to get licenses to work with certain kind of entities. So people may be familiar with Huawei. That was a big uh, effort undertaken to restrict Huawei is a big actor in telecommunications networks and 5G. You could see that, you know, uh, the Trump administration has adopted about 700 new entities to the entity list, 330 from China alone. So it's been quite a busy area. And that was driven by Congress. But I would say there's one really important reason we have this, Bonnie, and that is that because the job of companies is to make money to reward their shareholders, companies are not necessarily concerned or even know how to do national security. We rely on the federal government to do that. And that's what these laws empower the federal agents, the executive branch to do. So just a quick example, as we speak, you know, semiconductor firms today like uh, Applied Materials or KLA or LAM Research, they're actively selling advanced technologies to Chinese companies, which have links to the Chinese military, like YMTC and CXMT. And they're not going to stop that until the Department of Commerce steps in and says, hey, this is a problem. We've seen Department of Commerce act with regard to actors like Jinhua Semiconductor or SMIC Semiconductor International Corporation and so forth. And that is what the role of these laws are to do, to identify, to restrict the activity for a defined period of time, to explain the reasons for doing so. And we have that, we the people through Congress, empower these agencies to do that. So, Jim, can you talk about the um, Wassener Arrangement, which, of course, the full name is the um, Wassener Arrangement on Export Controls for Conventional Arms and Dual-Use Goods and Technologies, and you are apparently there at the creation. So tell us, has it worked as intended? Why or why, why not? And maybe give some specific examples of some of the successes. It was a very testing negotiation. And at the end of the day, the U.S. got less than it wanted. The Europeans mainly gave up a little bit more. And it was interesting because the French were among the most vociferous in opposing a new regime. But the intent was to control exports of arms and of dual-use technologies, technologies that aren't explicitly military. 
Some of it was a recognition that by mistake, exports had made Iraq the fourth largest military in the world. And a lot of us thought, well, we don't want that to happen again. So it's worked okay on munitions. Where there was a sticky point was China, even back then, in that the goal was to restrict exports of advanced technology to China. And many European countries were unwilling to do that. And so one of the things that's interesting to watch now is, are European countries like Germany, like France, changing their mind about China? And that would be something that will determine how effective this regime will be going forward. I might add, Bonnie, this is the 25th year of the Wassenaar Arrangement. It was uh, started with 33 countries. There's 42 today. And, you know, what I would say, one of the things that I think is most, from the rule of law design, as opposed to other kind of agreements, there's a role of the, I would say, the democratic confirmation. So the way that it works is that the, uh, and it's very painstaking, and even industry participates, various agencies of government, where they must come together on very extremely detailed lists. So for example, 55 different expressions around semiconductors, the what the width of this, this kind of part component and so on. And then once they're put in that agreement, they're brought back to the nations. And then the, those legislatures of the respective countries have to certify that they will uphold it. And so there is a real feedback loop, if you will, that this isn't something where, you know, a set of people in Vienna are deciding what our trade policy is. It is coming back, it has to be embedded within our laws. We get to certify it and say we agree, we don't agree. And that goes on, that process goes on every single year. They meet many times during the year. So I think that it's quite a remarkable organization that has been around and has lasted now a quarter of a century. Jim, has there ever been discussion of paving a way forward for inclusion of China in the Wassenaar arrangement, or is it best to keep China out? You know, well, the, the group decided to add Russia, and that was fairly early on. There's some secret codicils about Russia getting in that still are not public. So there was a willingness to take Russia on board. The U.S. was never willing to entertain the idea of China becoming a member. People toyed with the ideas during the heyday of our love affair with China, but it never went anywhere because honestly, Iran was a target for Wassenaar, not a hard target because there's so many sanctions on it, but the primary target was China. And that made it difficult to see how they could be a member. So, Rosalind, you referred earlier to some of the steps that the Trump administration has taken in this area. What has been done that has been specifically new compared to prior administrations to prevent strategic technologies from leaking to China? Well, I think one of the important things at the beginning of the Trump administration was a kind of documentation of the problems. I mean, in the sense of uh, making this 301 report around areas of pilfering of strategic technology. I think that was quite important, getting everybody on the same page, looking at international trade violations. That was a really uh, an important place to start. The other part I find was a realignment of defense and intelligence priorities. I think, as you probably know, you know, for a long time we had an orientation to terrorism, not that that is not important, but there was an, a need to refocus on the threat of China and that definitely happened. And to put in perspective, look at the NDAA from 1999, where Department of Defense was supposed to supply a list of the companies linked with the Chinese military. Huawei is one example. It took 
Pentagon 20 years to produce that list. It was finally emerged after being required in 1999. So that kind of transparency was important. The other part I would say in a qualitative way, and I, I think Jim probably knows this well, but how those kind of things translated, and of course, this is also driven by Congress at the time, which is wanting to have these reforms and changes. But look at the State Department. Maybe they had 20 people on the China desk. That was beefed up, you know, 200 people or so. So the resources and the manpower bringing to this issue, and how was that translated? Look at something like the Clean Network Initiative. I will certainly applaud Jim's role and CSIS as well to try to say, how can we bring this multinational effort to build clean networks where we are um, not just saying we're going to restrict companies, let's make a white list of companies, let's make a list of trusted partners based upon our shared values and trusted governance and security and so forth. And that effort, I think, has been quite successful because people don't want to be associated with the human rights violations and the surveillance and the privacy violations that we see with the Chinese government. So I think that's been a great success in great part to the work of CSIS. You know, so it's not just restricting. You do have to get the role to put the good things that you want, investing in the right area. And then I would say the other part is within the Department of Commerce itself, a lot of activity to put companies to designate them as military end users in China. Over 100 Chinese companies been designated in that way, called out for human rights violations, uh, certainly in the semiconductor space. And then, of course, you know, we still have outliers at this point, you know, YMTC and CXMT. There's still time to identify them. There is intelligence that they are linked with the military. So those kinds of actions have been significant. And I think that they are also in the sense of bipartisan in the sense that we we have now come to this critical mass where it isn't a partisan issue around China. We don't want to have our valuable technology in the hands of the Chinese military. So we've been focusing, of course, primarily in our discussion about how the U.S. and the rest of the world are attempting to cope with the problem of China's getting access to advanced technology. But I do want to touch a little bit on what the Chinese are doing. And most of their policies have been focused on self-reliance. But yet there is now also an effort to retaliate against the restrictions by other countries on exports of technology. And indeed, we've seen the Chinese create their own unreliable entities list perhaps mimicking what the Department of Commerce uh, has done. So I'm wondering, Jim, how you view this move. What do you think the Chinese are trying to achieve? I read one uh, observer argue that China's move might even indicate a step toward compliance with uh, international control regimes, though I myself am a bit skeptical. But I'm, <laughs> I'm interested in what your take is on China's intentions. What do you think they're trying to achieve? Bonnie could see my face, which showed uh, uh, skepticism, the idea that China's going to comply with international regimes. Well, that would be a first. And to be fair, they never, well, only once did they ship nuclear weapons technology. So they could argue they more or less have lived up to at least one regime. It's not going to happen. The thing I think is funny is that they're very often caught flat-footed by U.S. moves. They, they are so busy admiring themselves that you know, the, the U.S. will do something and the Chinese are surprised. So there is a fair amount of copycatting. The difference is that China has to sell to the rest of the world. And so it can only go so far in alienating that market. 
The second one is the Chinese are tone deaf when it comes to international relations. And so if you look at the sort of the power centers around the world, the Trump administration had difficulty doing this, but the, the Indians aren't happy with the Chinese. The Japanese aren't happy with the Chinese. The Europeans, although they just signed uh, this investment deal, they're increasingly suspicious. And it's interesting to watch how China's human rights record affects European political views of China. So I know they're trying to do this. What are they going to do? Stop selling to us? That would be a disaster for their economy. They're more dependent on the West than the West is on them. And that's not always recognized. Roslyn, you recently published a report that is called Policy Review of Semiconductor Manufacturing Equipment, The Art of Balancing Economic and National Security. And in that report, you describe three different approaches to tighten key technology export controls. And you describe these three approaches as no restrictions, the balanced approach, and technology decoupling. So can you elaborate a bit on what these three strategies are and why you recommend the balanced approach? Yes, well, thank you for for the opportunity to talk about that report. You can find it at chinatechthreat.com under semiconductors. And I wish I would say I could have been as clever as Congressman Rick Larson, who you had on last month, where he talked about punishers, decouplers, and salvagers to kind of organize the lawmakers in Congress. How What are their approaches to China? But what I could come up with, with what I've seen in our diverse policy discussion about semiconductors, were there three buckets of how we should look at what do we do about this advanced technology, this equipment we use to make semiconductors? So this notion around no restrictions is essentially saying, look, we have a lot of laws on the books. We don't need any more. Please don't add any more restrictions. This is largely what we hear from industry and trade associations. So, you know, that's it's natural that they would take that point of view, but it's interesting to discuss why I go through that in the paper. On the other end, you have what I call the technology decouplers. This would be, uh, for example, Derek Scissors at American Enterprise Institute, who I think makes valuable arguments around the predation uh, over time by China, the loss of high paying jobs, the loss of many other industries. He makes a number of arguments. Now, naturally, it's quite disruptive. You know, what he's wanting to do is to say we need to remove all semiconductors out of China, whether it's low end chips, high end, the whole thing, just get it out of China. And we need to do that for economic survival. I personally come into what would be called the balanced approach. And I, if I dare say, I think I'm also, uh, I copycat Jim here because I think he's really articulated it very well for years, essentially. But there's a balanced approach in that we cannot destroy enterprise, but we needn't willingly engage with military actors. When we have the intelligence that shows that they are military actors, then we should not be selling them our advanced technology. We shouldn't be exchanging it or trading it or what have you. And so I, I highlight different actors who have called about that balanced approach and describe, you know, again, this also will take into account like-minded nations. Again, talking about Japan, it's very important. You can't just say U.S. is going to be balanced and then Japan is not on board or Netherlands is not on board. We, it's important that we get the allies to be on the same page. Maybe the good news is there's not so many we have to coordinate, but we are talking about a lot of money. It's not necessarily easy to do, but in this post-COVID era, I think there's much more um, critical mass around talking about concerns about China. Look at the Pew public opinion studies around the world. People in the democratic countries are very concerned about 
China civil military fusion, as you described, very concerned about the practices, the lack of transparency. We can also see the Pentagon reporting to Congress. China's military is as advanced, you know, it's on track to overtake the U.S. very quickly in certain areas. So the writing is on the wall, if you will. And I would say when it comes to a point of no restrictions at all, to a balanced approach to say, look, at least let's preserve enterprise where we can. And the beauty of, let's say, a Wassenaar agreement is actually you'll find out many companies, they want to do business in the ethical way. They don't want to be knowingly... um, Strategic trade control can support business because you want to make sure your exports go to their intended user for the intended use. You don't want your strategic technology to be, you know, misdirected, stolen, what have you, misapplied. So, so I think that there's certainly room to build with that. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear what Jim has to say, what he thinks, uh, where we are on balanced approach. You know, so that that's where I, I come out in favor. But I do try to explain the reasons for other actors may have you know, different, different views about it. So I want to ask you both about where we should go on this issue with uh, the Biden administration and uh, its policies. But before I do that, I want to ask uh, Jim, since Rosalind's already talked about the approach of the Trump administration, I'd really like to hear, Jim, maybe a brief critique from you as to what the Trump administration has done right and wrong in this area. You know, so what they did right was they were right to confront China. And so they deserve a lot of credit for that. Now, the implementation of that confrontation could have been a little bit better. And so when you look at things like TikTok or the recent, well, we're going to delist uh, big Chinese telcos. No, sorry, changed our mind. There was a little bit of erraticness in the implementation. That's okay. Many administrations have that. And it was better to be moving in the right direction than to be stuck, which some previous administrations were definitely stuck. The biggest problem is the failure to work with our allies. And I had this conversation with a number of officials in this and other governments. You can make China change its behavior. I did that when I was at state. But to do that, you need the Japanese and you need the Europeans on board. And to get the Europeans on board, you need Germany. So Alienating Germany was not directly China policy, but it hampered our ability to crack down on the Chinese. And that will be a big challenge for the Biden administration. So a lot of points to the Trump guys for recognizing the problem and starting to take action. But hopefully the implementation could be a little smoother. You need Berlin. So let's finally talk about what you think the Biden administration should do to address these challenges, in addition to just building coalitions, working with allies and partners. We also might want to work with our allies and partners, but we may find when we get together in a room that we don't necessarily agree on issues. And particularly, we might agree on some things, but not others on trade. We already have the Europeans now signing an investment deal, even though the Biden administration appealed to the Europeans to not go ahead and to consult with them before uh, actually going ahead with the signing. But we people are talking about strategic autonomy in Europe now. So this is going to be more challenging than I think many people expect. We might be able to have a coalition on a specific issue, but when it comes to dealing overall with the challenges, 
that China faces, whether or not we should try to slow them down, prevent China's rise, contain them. A lot of countries, I think, still have an allergy to that kind of a policy. So what's the right approach that the Biden administration should take with like-minded countries to effectively control the export of dual-use technologies? Jim, you want to go first? Sure. These are ultimately political questions. And the Europeans, and Bonnie, you know this better than most, European attitudes towards China as a threat are changing. They don't expect the PLA to come roaring through the Fulda Gap. I think they're okay with that. But they have two problems that, that are changing their attitudes. The first is a real fear that China intends to hollow out their industries. And this is what rosalind has been talking about. I've heard this from senior officials in every European government I've talked to. The second one, not as clear, is uh, the fate of Hong Kong, right? And so Europeans, we did a project this summer where we talked to European officials about foreign investment. Spontaneously, they raised Hong Kong. We didn't bring up Hong Kong, but they brought up Hong Kong. And they said, look, China had agreed to a treaty, a formal agreement to give Hong Kong 50 years. And when it was no longer convenient, they trampled on it. Why won't they do the same with any agreement with us? So the immediate economic gains drove the European investment treaty, but the long-term risk, and you know, Europe holds itself up as sort of an arbiter of human rights. It's going to be increasingly awkward for them to do that in a partnership with China. So I think things are moving in our direction. The question is how can the Biden administration best capture that? Rosalind, what do you think? I agree that it's a political question, and Biden would be wise to be tough on China. He could win a lot of uh, of Trump supporters, there's no doubt about that. It is the one area where there's bipartisan agreement of, of taking a, a tougher road. I would say, in, in due respect to the Obama administration, they did identify threats with Huawei and restrictions did begin in the Biden administration. So it's not like there was you know no knowledge that China was a threat. I mean, there were some important actions. So I think a through line is there. I would certainly say the Trump administration has gone a long distance. So in the sense that they've done the difficult heavy lifting to a large extent. So Biden can enjoy kind of being the nice guy showing up and speaking in a more genteel way, if you will. So I would say for me, it remains to be seen. Can he build this, you know, these coalitions as he described that he could? I've lived now in Europe more than 10 years. I would agree with Jim's assessment that it has changed. I can remember when I moved here um, more than 10 years ago, and maybe there wasn't even a discussion about China, but today, left and right, they are similar to the United States, where we have the voters are very angry. They care about human rights. They are, they are concerned about the military. And what is dragging is industry. That is where the sticking points are, is that industry has dug in heels on so many areas, agriculture, and this can be used very frequently as a wedge with technological trade. So it is still to be played out, but I think that the Biden team to build upon the advantages that they inherit today. We've been talking with Rosalind Layton, who is founder of China Tech Threat and Jim Lewis, who is a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you so much for joining us.